Welcome to Extra Points, the Outsports Podcast, extra that, covers extra the outsports points podcast that explores extra points on lesser-known moments in LGBTQ sports history with special guests who discuss the larger Daniel cultural Villarreal. issues behind and each one. And as you know, I'm your host, host Daniel Villarreal, and with and New Year's in this just episode, around the corner, we're Don marking the recent commemoration of World editor. AIDS Day by examining how HIV changed the sports recap, world and the, the continued stigma and ignorance that persists among some athletes even but today. In the first half of the show, we'll discuss some ways that HIV collided with the sports make huge world. And in the second half, we'll speak with Aaron Butler, Deputy Director of Prevention of the Cascade AIDS Project, about why we don't care about HIV in sports And then we'll discuss the likelihood of HIV spreading in several hypothetical sports fan. But I'm going to start this episode by doing something a little bit different, he is and that's a kind talking of about myself. To about I'm a recreational wrestler, and so once, right when I was wrestling another dude, he told me that he'd never want to wrestle an HIV-positive opponent. When you I know, asked him why, like he said he worried that a competitor's sweat, their spit, or their bloody nose might possibly expose him to the virus. He said he would share a cigarette or a glass of water with an HIV-positive Now, don't get me wrong. Sex education well, you know, in our every country sucks. Olympics we've and even today, an nearly 40 years after the start of the epidemic, out there's still plenty of well ignorance just and anti-HIV and stigma. And a recently released really survey by the Merck Pharmaceutical Company found all that 20 other percent of HIV-negative millennials in the U.S. Is, avoided hugging, talking to, or even just we being friends with someone Sochi, with HIV Russia, for fear of catching the virus. So, being an armchair sex educator, I didn't shame my wrestling buddy for his ignorance. I just reassured him that in raise nearly awareness a decade of writing about home, HIV and other sexual health issues, there were no documented cases Japan that I knew of where HIV had been passed on through competitive sports, and that it was certainly safe to share a cigarette a or drink water But his comment got me thinking, either. if he thought so this, be a surely countless other people had similar misconceptions, and were probably discriminating against HIV-positive people under the fear of protecting themselves. And if it was this bad now, imagine how it must have been when the virus First in general, in has not had so I began researching uh, a the topic, whole lot of progress, and I was surprised to find uh, only one book on the topic to, of HIV you know, sort of in sports, of the Western world. one that and was published so, in 1999, uh, I think just long having before that PrEP, about, and widespread knowledge uh, about how like makes it virtually will just be really important and valuable to have. So yeah, any I mean, aspiring it looks writers like or right now we had uh, marriage there's equality a finally legalized in Taiwan, also, first Asian these country days, to legalize marriage equality. Who focus and specifically on Asian HIV homophobia and looks a lot different but maybe than American homophobia, even though some Asian quote unquote family values type groups HIV are funded and supported by American anti-LGBTQ. The homophobia and anti-LGBTQ sentiment there seems to be really driven along the idea that offspring Open wounds, uh, sort of responsibility blood, to their parents, removing bleeding players from the field, married, and using gloves to clean up treatment. Help raise the older generation. Early on, and kind of researchers also ruled out sweat and saliva and as so, agents of transmission. If you don't want that, then it's kind Partly of because millions of interactions uh, or in a country like uh, like China, people, uh, which and their I family members, different without any new infection, you know, is sometimes seen as even subversive. In 1990, the American Medical Journal of a possible transmission between an HIV-positive Western HIV-negative um, but I, I sometimes wonder if Adam Rippon and Gus Kenworthy might have However, sort of laid fertile ground for athletes and remained other male athletes in other sports because public health officials were unable to establish that they don't necessarily have to risk their careers just by being who they are.
I think that's true. Of course, they were not Academy the first of uh, recommended and that not the only, about HIV uh, but and how it could spread Adam through sexual activity and, and needle sharing during the use of extent, anabolic steroids. Were just very they also recommended visible, that athletes shouldn't right? share they sort of, you know, Adam like razors, has nail clippers really that might be contaminated infectious with personality something that we now know to be funny and, to transmit uh, HIV. you know, it, it's not but just it's when he's out on the ice, but actually when he's doing interviews and, and you know, he's sort of a pop culture icon as well as a really talented athlete. And so, you know, it, it just brought this extra uh, magnification to what it means to be out at the Olympics. And of course, you know, it took a political angle, too, because of his uh, little spat with Vice President Pence. Uh, when, in which, of course, he was absolutely right that Pence has supported conversion therapy in the past. So I, I think you're right that it, it's it's not just because of the two of them, but every single uh, Olympics, we've had both more out athletes and more visibility around them. And, you know, I, this is why I really think it's interesting to talk about sports in a queer space, because it is this like last bastion where Every little uh, in victory fact, and every after new piece out of visibility actually has a really big basketball season, impact to he make. Sought to mount a comeback uh, and so I, I totally year. agree that and four each, days each before Olympics, the start of the next season, uh, we see a little bit more. He announced that he'd be retiring for you know, good talking about because the fear his return was causing some Rapinoe, players and team uh, helping lead the U.S. women's soccer team to victory in the women's World Cup this last year. He didn't return to the game until 1996, but by then, he had near universal acceptance from the players. When asked about the difference between the two is also helping lead a lawsuit against the U.S. soccer team. For unequal pay of female athletes. By 1995, both the American Medical Society and the American Academy of Sports Medicine have legal standing to try to pursue equal pay for male and female athletes in U.S. soccer. We're not clear exactly whether there's going to be an in-court or out-of-court resolution, but it seems that if she does win her case, if she and the other women win their case, that it could potentially set a precedent for women and other sports maybe kind of coming forth and asking for equal pay there. I wonder if you have an opinion on that or if or kind of what your similar conclusions. Uh, well, I definitely want women athletes to be paid like the same amount. And in particular, if they're winning, that usually sort of suggests that they're bringing in more income as well, no uh, and, and probably the deserve to be rewarded for that. It's it's still shocking that we have these massive disparities. And I think what this particular Women's World Cup team demonstrated is just it disproved all those people who think that women's sports are less exciting to watch. It's a myth. I, I'm not suggesting there's any merit to people who believe that, but I think there are definitely a lot of people who are just like, oh, you know, the men have some different kinds of uh, action level, and so they're just going to be better to watch. And I, I just, I don't think that that's true. And certainly, the U.S. women's soccer team is much more enjoyable to watch than the U.S. men's soccer team, because they don't do very well. So <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's a wake-up call that yeah, we, we sort of allow ourselves to fall into this trap of just caring more about men's sports, but mm. the women are out there working their tails off. And, and at the time, people you know, thought it was great winning they continued to dive and in the representing our country to the world in some really great ways. Later, and many commenters accused I, I'm him of really hoping the best for them because it, even it, though his blood it, was clean, it's hard up with to gloves, look at them and, and say, the medical community knew you don't that deserve HIV to be paid as much as the men. 
Um, a New York Times story when, in 1999 really, when I, I know found a whole lot. I, I couldn't name a player on the U.S. men's soccer team, but I, I could name you Megan Rapinoe. So it's, HIV positive players from it, competing it just in goes to show that uh, we, we this was the Pudre school assume and it gained national about, attention and uh, was considered to be, by experts, completely uninformed, discriminatory. And no, I think you're right. That, I mean, there's a lot of evidence to show that women's sports are kind of relegated to a second tier of spectator interest. But something that was really exciting to see about the U.S. women's soccer team's rise in the women's World Cup was um, that concurrent with you know all the media buzz, there's also kind of a promotional didn't even really make you know I mean there's there's million dollar deals going on for different sorts of promotions whether you're talking about athletic gear you know or like Gatorade or things like that they kind of come along with this sort of rise in visibility and possibly because could have run I would say reason to believe that female athletes might even be paid less in those rounds and not just a number of openly gay athletes still died from the disease shock me there was Jerry Smith a former Washington there, but just not who died of HIV like, in October 15th, Discrimination against women and the wage Tom gap Waddell, is real founder everywhere. Of the gay games, um, who died in July 1987 at age 49. In that case. Gay Formula yeah, One racer Mike Butler, um, you know, who died talking in about uh, kind of gender in sports, race car driver Tim we Richmond, also have coming, who died in 1989 uh, in the would be that we might Andre finally Nicola, see a resolution a gay of the USA powerlifting organization ban on transgender competitors. Basically, uh, J.C. Cooper, she's a powerlifter who Robert wasn't McCall, allowed to compete in USA powerlifting. In she filed a complaint or charge with the Ash, Minnesota Department of Human Rights. And yet again, we're not really sure if this is going to go to mediation or if there's going to end up being you know, some sort of actual hearing. But I'm wondering, Zach, based on, because you've been writing about trans people trans issues for a really long time, do you think the debate around trans figure skater sports. Robert Wagenhofer died on well, December 15, 1999, is really it's going to be magnified in 2020 for a whole lot of reasons beyond just this like specific Luganus. case because there's also Roy we'll Simmons, have the Alliance Defending Freedoms case in Connecticut gay figure uh, against Rudy the high Galindo, school who was diagnosed uh, in 2000 G. Uh, Wallace the gay Australian trampoline gymnast uh, who was inspired by Greg Luganis to come out as HIV positive in a letter to the Sydney Star Observer after 2012. It's been a while since a major sports figure came out as HIV positive barring the recent coming out of former rugby player it's, it's Gareth this, Thomas, they, they put the stick who only in the came out in September 2019 after a tabloid threatened to out him clearly they think But sports they can prove educate others about HIV around the world. Real Both the Olympics and the United Nations AIDS program see sports programs and activities as a way to provide a platform for education, breaking down stigma, if you providing a place for safe, issues, supportive team environments you know that for those living with HIV, simply not true, and using sports activities as a point of access the International Olympic Committee and why another NCAA and all and of these other major media sports authorities it's celebrities, have coaches, and spokespeople to promote messages about you know, HIV as long as you and serve as role models for attracting funding and support you worldwide. Can compete according to your gender Today you can even see sports events specifically dedicated to raising awareness and fundraising for HIV, including simple AIDS life hypothetically and the more strenuous AIDS life cycle. An annual seven-day, five-hundred and thirty-five-mile bike ride. The problem in all of these stories we're going to take is a small that the break. We'll come back. We'll continue really our conversation. We hope you'll stay with us. The trans in our next segment, we'll be speaking with Aaron Butler, <laughs> and deputy what we director really of prevention at the Cascade AIDS kind of Project, have more about why we don't often hear about HIV in sports mediocres these days, and, and, and the likelihood of spreading and HIV not, and not several to demean any of these other athletes. But there are so many trans athletes out there. There have been no documented cases of anyone contracting HIV in sports. And if there had their, their fellow he thinks we would have heard athletes, about it, specifically because such a story would have been big news no, there is and no confirmed people's worst fears here, about the disease. But 
the conservatives latch onto these stories of, oh, this HIV person won, playing in high therefore, level professional sports. they must have had but the continued atmosphere of anti-HIV stigma and, and ignorance about transition. Yeah, you're, you're, like you're, sorry, if I can interrupt, you're absolutely right that they're, they're, they're competitors at every level and, and stories that we're never really hearing but Aaron of people who compete and just like while they're a long time other cisgender competitors aren't winning first place and aren't even placing in the top three. And it seems like we almost never hear about those, but but they're probably more common than we realize. Well, and, uh, there's a reason we don't hear about them, which is that they're just not remarkable stories. But the reason we hear about the trans people winning is because f- groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom are specifically looking for them. And you immediately see all of the conservative blogs light up, you know, with this narrative that it, this is so unfair to the cisgender athletes. But it it is totally fair. It's just like... You can't believe that trans people should be allowed to compete if they're not allowed to win. You, you know, you have to like leave room for the possibility that yes, it can be fair and they can still win. If you set up a situation where yes, of course we're going to let transgender athletes compete, but we're just not going to let them ever be winners, or they have to compete in their own separate league if they want to actually win prizes. Like that's that's just segregation. It's not actually an accurate way to think about these issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I concur. You know, something I'm personally excited about uh, in 2020 is we're finally going to get the release of an upcoming film called A Man's World. And for listeners who haven't heard about this, it's a new film by director Lenny Abrahamson about a black bisexual boxer named Emil Griffin. Now, this is a real life boxer who in 1962 beat his homophobic opponent to death. Uh, and I'm not sure if the film is going to focus just on that. Actually, we know that the film is going to focus on a nonfiction novel of the same name, A Man's World. Anyhow, um, what's exciting to me about this film is it's one of the rare films that shows a queer athlete of color. And and so, you know, like, I'll, I'll definitely be paying the ticket price, grabbing my popcorn. Zach, what, what do you think about this sort of representation? Well, you know, it's it's always challenging when what they did was a bad thing <laughs> that they're known for. Because obviously, you know, going after your opponent such that you end up killing him, not not the proudest thing. But the the need to have stories about these intersections, you know, not only just queer and people of color, but experiences that people had, you know, generation a generation or two ago, and, and how that formed how we should think about what they might be experiencing in the present, and also bisexual visibility. You know, um, we're so quick to sort of just define people on the gay straight binary, and to have someone bisexual who, you know, had reasons to want to be um, perceived as straight, but also had reasons to be perceived as as gay. Um, navigating what was actually homophobia in a world that didn't even understand, the, you know, or be, was even able to comprehend bisexuality. I think we still struggle uh, in society today with that kind of biphobia and bi invisibility. So there are just so many intersecting factors here that it's it's just going to be a, uh, a novel kind of story to get to watch unfold. Yeah, I agree. It'll be nice to see the nuance with which they handle it. You know, my first reaction when hearing about his story uh, against his homophobic opponent was, I guess, a very knee-jerk reaction of like, 
haha, you know, talk, talk shit, get hit. But, you know, when you think about it, even though we might initially kind of take pride in, you know, LGBTQ people who stand up for themselves and, you know, quote unquote, bash back, we also understand that sometimes when people do defend themselves, they end up in jail. If you look at uh, Abel Sedeno, he's a young queer uh, teenager in New York City who killed one of his attackers when he was attacked in school. He claimed self-defense and he ended up being sentenced to 14 years in jail. And so I think that a responsible depiction of this, as I'm sure it will be, you know, won't just make light or, or have a sort of one-sided simplistic view of the death of his opponent, but will probably or hopefully treat it with a lot more nuance and and show the psychological and possibly sociological effect that it had after the effect. After the sure. Fact. I, I totally agree. And, and, and it makes me think of two things. You know, one, the injustice that we see when it comes to queer people is both that the people who perpetrate violence against queer people get lesser sentences and that when queer people defend themselves, they tend to get punished more. Uh, and obviously that's true across racial lines as well. And so all of that is happening uh, in, in sort of the context around this, this film and this story. But the other piece is that so much of homophobia and biphobia and transphobia, uh, really I heard so much, all of it is rooted in the patriarchy and rooted in toxic masculinity. And so I think this is also a really interesting lens because, you know, boxing is this real embodiment of walking up to the line of toxic male violence and then restraining it. Um, I, I hope that's not offending boxing fans out there, but as sort of an onlooker of like, your whole job is to beat each other up without beating each other up too much. Um, right. You know, it's, 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 it's definitely engaging in that space. And so to, to have the situation where, you know, the perceptions of your masculinity and your violent reactions to that and violent violence intended by that are all sort of circulating around this. And so I hope that in addition to this specific story and some of the justice issues you were talking about, it's also a lens for us to kind of continue to this important conversation we've been having in the past couple of years uh, with the Me Too movement and other aspects like that about toxic masculinity and, and the violence um, that, that can stem from it. Well put. Is there anything that you're personally looking forward to in 2020 regarding sports, Zach? Well, you know, we did kind of have this story that never really appeared about uh, a, a soccer player in England and one of the major clubs who was supposedly going to come out and we had this sort of anonymous Twitter account that was teasing it and then never did and, and sort of went back into the closet. And you sort of saw all of this great hope that we could finally kind of break into the biggest uh, you know, unfortunately, male-dominated sports leagues with some some good out people modeling that, and that's sort of what I'm hoping for in 2020. And, and I hope I'm not sounding like I'm contradicting my point earlier about the undue attention that men's sports receive. But you know, here in the U.S., we're looking at the four biggest uh, leagues: men's football, men's basketball, men's baseball, and men's soccer, and you know, very few uh, examples, oh, in men's hockey, I should say, count all five of them, because uh, we have had some out soccer players, but none in the other four main leagues. And unfortunately, like the reality is they are the most watched leagues. They are the, you know, most money raising leagues. And I'm really hoping that this is the year we get some breakthrough, because in my mind, it only has to happen once or twice before it's not interesting anymore. But the, the stakes are still so high. And so many of these young athletes, these young men think that their entire 
fate pointed to be determined by whether or not they're willing to be open by this uh, about their identity and you know I, we have to know that have to believe that they're out there i just hope that you know all of the stars can align for somebody to both feel supported and and feel brave enough to share that about themselves and sort of break that ground um i think as we start this new decade that would be a really great way to start to transform sports even more uh to be more inclusive that's all for today's episode. We'll be taking off next week to celebrate the end of your holidays. I want to thank my guest. The Extra Points opening theme came from bensound.com. If you like Extra Points, please check out Outsport's other excellent podcasts like Level Playing Field, Same Team, LGBT in the Ring, The Transporter Room, Three Strikes You're Out, and Five Rings to Rule Them All. You can find them all on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, CastBox, and Player FM. And if you like them, please help us by leaving a review, telling your friends, and subscribing. It helps a lot. I'm Daniel Villarreal, and this has been Extra Points. We hope you'll join us for the next installment. Until then.